Has anyone ever called on you? Maybe you're in a classroom setting or in a meeting or something like that, and someone called on you and your heart sank, right? You're just trying to sit in the back and not be noticed, but all of a sudden, everyone's looking at you. Could you imagine if I did that right now, right? And I just said, hey, would you uh, stand and sing a rendition of Amazing Grace for us this morning, right? Just called out your name, Carmody, or something like that, right? <laughs> that would be awkward, right? You wouldn't like that feeling. And every once in a while, I go rogue and ask some, uh, someone to pray before I had a chance to talk to him. Uh, the look of sheer terror in their eyes says it all. It's almost as if I asked them to speak 45 minutes on the meaning of life when really I just asked them to bless the food. Adult men might be the most scared in that situation. But we get put in these positions sometimes where we want to look around and say, who, me? And we're going to look at a person over the next two Sundays. He was a man that was put in this sev uh, situation several times just like this. And his name was Gideon. Gideon wound up being a judge one day, but he kind of did it kicking and screaming. And we talked about another judge last year by the name of Samson. And he was Israel's last judge. Samson had every opportunity to be a great man of God, but instead he chose over and over to ruin his life. So before we go any further, let's zoom out a little bit and put this time period in perspective. Obviously, this is an Old Testament account. That means before the life of Jesus this is in the book of Judges. And during this time, the people of Israel were trusting and believing that one day God was going to send them a savior. So rewind all the way to the beginning. We throw up a, a timeline here that will also be in your notes. And I'd encourage you this week to just take a minute uh, this week and, and go to the CBC app and check out the notes there and just kind of get yourself in the mindset of where this account is. It starts with the Garden of Eden. And the fall of man, and the flood, and the Tower of Babel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph and his amazing technicolor dream coat, Jews in slavery, Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, Joshua in the battle of Jericho, and then living in the promised land. So after years of following great leaders like Moses and Joshua, all of a sudden, the people of Israel had no human leader. Israel was broken up into these 12 different tribes that each had their own pseudo-government, but mainly the country was a theocracy. God was their king. But as people do, Israel drifted far from God. So God would get their attention, and then they would get right, and then gradually they would fall back into doing evil in the sight of God again. So, this brings us to the book of Judges. The Judges were people that God raised up to get the attention of the people of Israel when they were going in the wrong direction. And the Judges had their work cut out for them. Because this was a time when the Bible says in Judges, over and over again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Say that back to me, you ready? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That sounds vaguely familiar to us today, right? A little bit like the time we're living in right now. 
So judges like Deborah, Shamgar, Samson, and my favorite Ehud were all leaders that God used to bring his people back to him. So we've done Samson. We're going to do Gideon today and uh, next Sunday. And then hopefully we'll be able to highlight some of these other judges over the next year or two. But at the beginning of Gideon's story, Israel again has rejected God as their king and has worshipped other gods. So we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. If you want to turn in your Bibles there, Judges chapter 6 will stay there pretty much the whole time. Be in verse 1. Here we go. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of the Midianites for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountain and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, not a sheep or an ox or a donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Israel likes to sin, but they do not like to face the consequences of their sin. God is the only true God, the only one that can save them. And God had proven it to Israel over and over and over again. But they instead like to build their own gods that they can form and fashion in any way that they want. So Israel is conquered again and oppressed again because they rejected God as their king. And they're constantly getting pillaged by their enemies. They're hiding in caves and they're struggling to have enough food because their enemies keep taking it. Things were bad. Well, the people of Israel finally figured out as the last resort, right? They finally figured out that their idols weren't helping them. So they cried out to God and God heard them. So we cut to Israel. We cut to this Gideonite, uh, this man named Gideon. And he's hiding from the Midianites, the oppressors. And he's threshing a small harvest of wheat by himself. Now normally this would have been done out in the open where the wind could carry the chaff, the, unusual, uh, the unusable part of the uh, wheat away. You want to do this outside. But instead, he was hiding in a wine press, hoping that his enemies wouldn't find him and steal the little food that he had for his family. And then the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. As a side note here, many scholars believe that in these instances in the Old Testament, some of them, when it says the angel of the Lord or an angel uh, uh, appeared, that these are God himself. Many times, like in this passage, the angel speaks as God, he identifies as God, and the hearer understands that he has met with God himself. They refer to this as a theophany. And it's also interesting to see that in the New Testament, we don't see this phrase, an angel of the Lord, used again after the incarnation of Christ. 
So many scholars believe that the, these instances are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus himself, similar to how he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus after Jesus' ascension. This would maybe explain a little bit about what Jesus was doing in the Old Testament since we know that he has always been. Now, obviously, Jesus is God, 100%, uh, you know, an equal part of the, the Trinity. But the word angel simply means messenger. Anyway, here's what the angel of the Lord said to Gideon in verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Man, Gideon sounds a lot like people I know, right? The angel of the Lord gives a standard greeting, right? The Lord is with you. And you can almost hear Gideon mutter these words back. Huh, the Lord's with us. Then why is all this bad stuff happening to us? Apparently, he can bring us out of Egypt, but then he just forgets about us. Where are all these miracles now? I'm hiding with what little food I have, hoping to make it just another day. Yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. Yeah, the Lord is with me. Gideon has a lot to say. It's clear Gideon has some baggage, right? He talks a big game, too, like he knows what God should do and that God isn't being fair and like they don't deserve what's going on. Well, the angel of the Lord has a surprise for Gideon next in verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and say, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he, Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Gideon uh, is surprised here. God says, Hey, it's awesome. That's awesome that you're uncomfortable with how things are going because I'm going to use you to change things. Gideon looks at the angel of the Lord and says, who, me? No, 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 no. You got the wrong guy here. How many are vibing a little bit hard with how, uh, you know, Gideon is reacting to this? God, you want me to do something? Now, wait a minute, God, you don't understand. I just like to complain about everything, not actually do something. I just want to talk about how bad the drug problems are in West Virginia. I don't actually want to get involved, Right? I just want to complain about how bad the racial divide is. I don't actually want to make relationships with minorities. I just want to post my thoughts on abortion. I don't actually want to get involved in helping a scared mother or in supporting the foster system. I just want to mumble about how the world needs Jesus. I don't actually want to tell anybody. Gideon looks a lot like us. A lot of virtue signaling, but not a lot of virtue. God, it's a shame what's happened to the Israel. I hope you find somebody to fix it. I'm sure you can find someone else. God, why don't you do something? Just don't use me. Gideon has his excuses locked and loaded. He's from the smallest tribe 
He doesn't have a lot of power or sway. He considers himself the smallest man in that tribe. He doesn't have the right talents to lead. But God looks at Gideon and says, perfect. You're just the person I need. See, God doesn't need you to be anything except willing. And that's why Christ told Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And you say to God this morning, God, I don't have enough. And he looks at you and says, that's okay, child. I'm enough. Judges 6, 16. God says back to Gideon, and the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. See, if you don't have faith that God can use you, that's just a plain lack of faith in God's power. God had told Gideon directly, like face to face. But, God, uh, but Gideon still doubted and he still wanted proof. Sometimes I, you know, kind of wish that I lived back then when God spoke to people this way, right? That God just appeared to me and tell me what to do. And God's probably like, yeah, I used to do that all the time. And people still didn't believe me. So instead, I wrote it down nice and neat for you so that you could not get confused. So Gideon asked for a sign. And he, you're going to know this about Gideon. He does this a lot. It's actually surprising that God is so patient with Gideon. He must have taken into account that Gideon was a little bit of a scaredy cat, and he needed a little bit of extra assurance. Verse 17, and Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is you who speak with me. And Gideon brings out a food offering, and the angel of the Lord touches it with his rod, and it's consumed with something like fire. And Gideon finally realizes without a doubt who he is dealing with. Next, God would give Gideon his first mission. But before that, Gideon builds an altar and worships God there. And for now, Gideon bows his heart to God. So this first mission that God gives Gideon, you would think that it would be to uh, go and fight the enemy to save them from their oppression. But God tells Gideon instead to go and destroy the altar to Baal that your father has on his property. You'd think that he'd go and send him out to fight the enemy, but he doesn't yet. First, it starts at home. Apparently, this altar on his father's property is a, a large one because it takes two bulls, and ten servants to pull the whole thing down. This idol and altar would have been to the same gods that the enemies worshipped. And this is an important lesson for pastors and uh, church leaders and Christians to learn is that before you set out to do something for God, you better make sure things are right with God in your own home, in your own heart. Next, Gideon makes a sacrifice with one of those bulls to worship the one true God of Israel. He uses the wood of the idols to light the fire. And he does all this at night, probably because he's scared to death of what his family will think. And the next day, what that 
town is going to do. And apparently the whole town had used this altar because they're all mad. And when they found out, they were ready to kill Gideon. And I'm sure Gideon is muttering to himself, this is why I didn't want to get involved. But Gideon's father stepped in with some wisdom. He may have worshipped idols, but he got this right. In verse 30, the men of the town said to Joash, Gideon's father, they said, bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all those who stood against him, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him contend for himself. Because his altar has been broken down. Joash, uh, his father, said that God isn't very strong if he can't defeat little old Gideon. And this is just the beginning of God using weak Gideon to do some big things. Things are bad. People were hurting. And Gideon said, God, why don't you do something? And God says to Gideon, I did. I made you. You have burdens and you have worries and things that trouble you in this world, people that you hurt for. These are not chances for you to complain. Those are calls to action. And you can have all the right theology and so-called morals and ideology, but if those things don't motivate you to do something, then that's not love. It's just sounding brass and tinkling cymbals. A social media post, a profile pic that changes for a week, a signature on a petition, a stray comment that disappears into the wind. And you might be sitting here today saying, who, me? I'm not particularly powerful. I don't have much influence. I don't have a lot of talent. I can't fix every problem in this world. And that's true. But part of the problems with having and living in this age of technology that we do is that it connects us all over the world. And because of that, we tend to be disconnected from our actual world, the one that we live in the street that we're on, the job that we go to. And we grieve and complain about national and global problems and we ignore our local problems. The people that need us around us, the ones that we can actually change. And it's easy for us to say, someone needs to do something and never do anything ourselves. And we talk a big game about problems and don't actually ha uh, you know, bring any solutions. Or we take those solutions to someone else and tell them to do it. Burdens are calls to action. And it's clear that you can't do everything to fix everybody's problems. But you can do something to fix somebody's problem. And do for one what you wish that you could do for everyone. Burdens are calls to action to usher in God's kingdom in this world as uh, it is in heaven here on this earth. Bringing healing and speaking hope, letting love push us to action. But it starts at home. 
Make sure you clean up your own stuff and get the, the beam out of your own eye, not by your power, but by surrendering it all to God, to pull down these altars to the stuff and the cares of this world and worship your God. Gideon thought that he was just complaining. But God was calling him to do something. Gideon said, who, me? I'm too weak. And God says, you're perfect. That's probably your story here today as well. No, you can't do everything. But sometimes we get paralyzed by how many problems are in this world that we forget to actually help anyone. God is calling you to do something, to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in our community, in your world. And for the gospel to move forward, you need to take steps. You are plan A for God's kingdom being rushed into this world. There is no plan B. And you think here this morning, God, I don't have enough. That's okay. He is enough. But God, I'm weak. And that's okay because he is strong. So stop saying, who, me? Yes, you. Stop complaining and let God use you to do something. Every head's bowed and eyes closed. Gideon looks a lot like us. Gideon had this stirring inside of him. He knew that the way things were is not the way things should be. And there are situations in your life and people around you that you know the way things are going is not the way things should be for them. That's an opportunity. That's a call to action. You can't fix everybody's problems, and sometimes problems that people aren't going to take your help. But you can let people know that you're ready to act. You could step in and say, hey, is there anything I can do? I can't do everything. I can't pay off your mortgage. I can't, you know, uh, you know fix all your past problems. But I can be here, and I can let you know I love you. I can... Step in and fill a need maybe that I can do. But Christians are people of action. People that follow Christ are people of action. Out in the community just like Christ was. Finding broken people and stepping into situations. And don't let the fact that there's so many problems in this world overwhelm you into doing nothing. Find something, find a burden that you have, and step into it. Hopefully God's been working over your heart over the last few weeks, few months, and you already know what that thing is. God's been calling you to step into a situation. Don't go alone. Don't go in your own power. To make sure things are right in your own heart. There's no sin between you and God and repent and get forgiveness and, and make plans. 
to not do that thing again. Maybe the pride is what needs to get out of your eyes and really what has been hindering you from helping someone is the fact that you think you're better than them. You need to repent of that this morning. Maybe you're stuck in some type of sin, pornography or, or sexual sin or, or alcoholism or uh, you know, just being lazy. Maybe you're stuck in some sin and you need help and accountability. You can start today and confess that thing. Pull down that altar in your life so that God can use you to do something. And the most amazing thing is that when we give to someone else without looking at anything in return, God fills us up in an amazing way like never before. One of the key ways to fight depression and anxiety and those things is to help someone else, to think about someone else. God has things in your life that he wants you to do, spaces that he's let you know are broken, that he wants to bring healing. We take a moment here, call out to God, and ask him what he is calling you to do. Very well may be what you just have been complaining about so much. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure yet that you know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You're not sure yet that you are a follower of Jesus. You're open to it. Uh, you're not against it necessarily. You're not all in yet. Well, there's something you need to know, and that's that we each are born with a problem. That problem is called sin. And sin stands in between us and God. That's everything we think and say and do that breaks God's law. That's lying and, and pride and hurtful words that we lash out. These things stand between us and a holy and a perfect God. Happened way back at the beginning of time. But God was not satisfied with that broken relationship. And his plan was always to send his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, an equal part of the Trinity. And he did that 2,000 years ago. To be the bridge between us and God. And to pay the debt of our sin. And he did that after living 33 years without sin. God died on a cross for us. He took all the sin uh, that you had committed over your whole life and every person and died in its place. So that you could be innocent. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You could do that today once and for all. If, it, if you haven't done that yet and, and given your heart over to Christ, it's a gift that's outstretched to you today. It's simple to just receive it. You don't have to work your way there. Jesus did all the work. It is finished. See, Jesus didn't stay dead either. On the third day, he rose from the grave, bringing our salvation with him. You can call out today, once and for all, settling that forever. It's not a magic prayer. It's a, about genuineness in your heart. You want to follow Christ. You want to do what he says.
We're going to sing here in just a second. And as we do, maybe that's your opportunity to call out to him and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've, I've not done things your way. God, forgive me. I know I can't do anything good enough to get to you, but I know that Jesus did it. And I put my faith in Jesus and what he did. Please save me.